As you turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, I want to highlight uh, the insert that's in your bulletin. Kathy Boke is one of the missionaries that we support. They, their ministry is in France. Kathy's been a personal friend of mine since 1970. Uh, and uh, she's Marty Johnson's sister. And she's coming uh, and sh uh, to uh, do a presentation at Sands Moco at uh, Fresh Grounds. And I'd like to, she w wrote a personal invitation to us as a church. And for those of you especially who, uh, well, first of all, there's going to be a reception next Saturday uh, from 4 to 6 of this art presentation that she's doing. And then also she's going to do a workshop there. And she gave you an email if, you, if you're interested in your artistic and such. Um, she, Kathy wanted to make sure that we understood that, uh, that that was going on. So I'd encourage you to go to the open house for sure. And then uh, if for those of you who are artistic and would like to be a part of that, just read the announcement that she has there for us. We're going to be studying Ephesians 1 again. And uh, let's turn to God and ask him to give us grace and help in the midst of that. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you and we glorify you. We worship you, and we know that you have done great and mighty things for us in Christ Jesus. So now, Father, we just humble ourselves before you, and we ask, sincerely, genuinely, we ask that you would please open this text to us, open our minds, make us aware and alive and grateful for all that you have done and encouraged and hopeful. Father, please work. Please move in our lives. Please bless us and be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, if you have it open to you, verses 3 through 14, as I've said before, is one sentence in the Greek New Testament. Paul, when Paul wrote this out, he wrote one sentence. And uh, I've come to the conviction that I think it's the greatest sentence that's ever been written in any human language, in any human hand, in all of the history of the world. That's just my opinion, but I think it's the greatest sentence ever written. Um, and by grace, this greatest sentence ever written, this 11-verse sentence, is ours, by grace. And what this sentence is, this one sentence, is... It's, it's a praise to God. It's a sentence of praise and worship. Look at verse 3. It begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 14 it ends, To the praise of his glory. This sentence is a praise and worship. And it's a sentence of worship of the Father, verses 3 through 6, of the Son, verses 7 through 12, and then of the Holy Spirit, Verses 13 and 14. And this sentence is really, it's so rich. It's just so rich that you could almost describe it like this. It's a hymn. It's a doxology. It's a systematic theology. It's one of the most beautiful paintings ever painted. It's a glorious symphony. It's an amazing rich piece of literature all wrapped together in one. All wrapped together in one. And... It's about God's glory, glory after glory after glory is mentioned in here. Look at verse, uh, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Look at verse 12, to the praise of his glory. 
verse 14, to the praise of his glory. And it's just, it's glory after glory after glory. It's grace after grace after grace. Now, in this verses, the verses that we're going to look at today, verses 9 and 10, the end of verse 8, verses 9 and 10, Paul is going to introduce something that I think Christians today, we need to refocus on, understand, we need to grasp, because it's all through Scripture. But sometimes when we read our Bibles, we don't pick up on this. And I think that we're really, really losing out a lot because we don't pick up on this. And so I want to really kind of encourage you today. So today, we're going to go through these two verses sort of phrase by phrase. And I'm going to highlight. We're going to look at some other passages of Scripture. So I must admit, I must admit to you that for about the first 15 minutes here, we're going to work hard, okay? But your hard work is going to be really, really well paid off. If you, if you grasp this. See, I'm afraid that we live in a time and an age where we have so dumbed down everything that unless stuff comes to us very quick and very easy, we're like, well, I don't get that. I don't know. I'm just going to walk away. And, 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 and I, I'm, I'm saddened by that. One of the things that I'm saddened by is this drive in, in, in the world today, in the Christian world today, of easy-to-read Bibles. This drive of, oh, no, this is too hard. I can't read the old King James. I can't read the new King James. We need, we need something in modern language. We need to dumb it down and make it easy. And the thing is, is when I look at those translations and I compare it to the original, it's not only dumbed down, but a lot is left out. And that's not how God said it. And I, I, I feel like let's... It's, if God said it so it's a little bit, a little bit, takes a little bit of time, a little bit of effort to work out and to look at, then so be it. Translate that. Don't water that down. Translate it and let the reader work it out. And dear friends, the best things in life are not necessarily things that come easy. The best things in life are things that, that you, you have to just take some time on and you have to, you have to, to work at a little bit. Much of what we call modern art today could be done by a third grader. It's banal. It's silly. But you watch. If you were to look at the, at the, at the uh, notebooks that are left from Da Vinci and Rembrandt and how many days and months and years they spent just trying to paint a human hand over and over and over and over again to get what they got. And I think that we need to be willing to do that. And so what we're going to look at is we're going to look at something that undergirds all of this text that we have looked at so far, and that's this. And I've entitled the sermon, The, capital T-H-E, The Huge Master Plan. And that's what we're going to look at today. And this idea that God has made a plan, worked that plan out in, in, in detail before it even started. He had this master plan. If you could think of it this way, he had page after page after page, if you could say, of blueprints. He had, he had a strategy, he had a plan, he had this worked out. And that's what history is working out of and, and working out on. And it's beautiful. It's a huge, beautiful master plan. And this idea that God had planned has already uh, uh, come to us in this text. Now, for those of you who have been following along this series, you, you, we've gone step by step through, you, you might be able to, to see this again without me going into a lot of detail. Look at verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. There you have this, this God working out something before the world was ever, ever, ever even created. 
There, there's a plan. There's, there's, there's planning. There's a process going on here. Verse 5, predestined us to adoption. Now, that idea of predestined is to appoint ahead of time. So way before the world was created, there's this plan. There's this people. They've been predestined to adoption. Look at the end of verse 5. According to the good pleasure of his will. God's will, the good pleasure of God's will was working these things out even before the world was created. There's this plan that's being worked out, the good pleasure of his will. His will is the plan, and, and we see that in there. And so there's this idea that, that these things are happening according to God's purpose, that he has a purpose in it. And in fact, verse 6 gives us the purpose, to the praise of the glory of his grace. This plan is a plan of grace, to show the glory of grace, to show it forth. This plan involves the sending of his son in verse 7. It involves his blood. It involves redemption as an expression, verse 7 says, of the riches of his grace, which, verse 8 says, which he made to abound. And, and you, you remember I said, I think that a better translation there is to lavish upon us. He lavished this, this grace upon us. But then notice the next phrase right that ends verse 8. In all wisdom and prudence. By the way, the wisdom of God, I would like to just throw this out there. The wisdom of God is something that I'd really encourage you to meditate on. Because it's a very important thing in scripture, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God. And you know what? When you start thinking about the wisdom of God, wisdom is not knowledge. It, it involves knowledge. But wisdom is the practical outwork of knowledge and the way, to, the way things work out in the practical way of knowledge. How God does stuff in the wise way that he does it. When I have my devotions, I sit in front of a window, and, and, and in front of that window are three, is three trees at the end of my yard, two pine trees and a maple tree. And there are times that I just sit there, and I look at that maple tree, and I say, man, I, I want to study, I wanna study this, this bio, botany thing out. You know, like Look at that thing, and look at its, its, its heavy bark, and then look at the branches, and look at the buds starting, and there's a root system underneath the ground, and that root system is drawing these things up. And there, I know from cutting wood that there's, there's all kinds of different layers there and there's an inner and I know from making bows out of wood that there's an inner layer there uh, right next to the bark and, and they all have a purpose and they all have a means and it's just like wow wow this is amazing what God has done this, yesterday we were doing CPR and, and he was explaining the heart and he said, you know, the heart, he says, has this series of, of cells up here and they produce a little electric shock every second. And that little electric shock then shoots through the heart and that's what makes it pump. And then there's these little receptor uh, cells down there and they say, we got the signal and they send it back, send another one. And, the whole, and he's explaining this and I just wanted to raise my hands and start praising God. I was just like, wow. God, you're amazing. Your wisdom is everywhere. And I want to encourage you. Take a walk and start thinking about the wisdom of God. Sit around. Look. Think about the wisdom of God and what he has done. But this plan that God has worked out, he worked it out according to his wisdom. And look at the next word, prudence. When was the last time you heard that word? Well, it's been a long time, I'm sure. It's been a long time since you heard the word prudence. What does it even mean? It's too bad we lost a word like this because it means something really cool. It means the faculty of thoughtful planning, the faculty of thoughtful planning. God worked out this huge plan with all wisdom and prudence, okay? That's what Paul was saying here in verse 8. Wisdom and thoughtful planning. He, he, before time began, worked on this plan, came up with this plan, this huge plan. Now he goes on to talk about it in verse 9. Having made known to us the mystery of his will. 
So the plan is his will, the mystery of his will. Now, when we use the word mystery, a lot of times we immediately start just checking out. Oh, well, mystery. Well, that's a mystery. We'll never figure that out. That's a mystery. It's just so mysterious. It's just great. And it's true. There are things that are incomprehensible in a sense that in that way it's a mystery. It's incomprehensible to us. And the Bible talks about that, even about certain aspects of God and his character. In Romans 11, verse 33, it says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom, there we are back to the wisdom of God, the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become his counselor? There's clearly a biblical idea that there are certain things about God that just go beyond our little brain's ability to grasp and to understand them. That's an aspect of what the Bible teaches about God. But that is not what is being said here. More often, when the Bible uses the term mystery, don't think of something incomprehensible. This is how you should think of mystery. I'm going to prove this to you from the Bible. Mystery in the Bible, as it's used, is that plan that God has put together before the foundation of the world using his wisdom and his prudence according to his will and his purposes, and it was kept hidden. For a long stretch of time, it was kept hidden and has now been revealed. That's how the word is being used. And so notice what Paul is saying here in verse 9. He's not saying this is incomprehensible. He's saying, having made known to us the mystery of his will. He made his will known to us. That's what he's saying. Now, notice he's going to say this again. Just flip over to chapter 3 and verse 8. Look in chapter 3 and verse 8. Paul says this. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Now notice this mystery now is to be clearly seen. Paul's job is to help us to see this mystery. And then he goes on to say this, describing the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom, there's that wisdom of God, might be made known... This mystery is now being made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal, there we go, back in time again, to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so here we have this mystery, and this mystery is being made known. And notice, if you go back to verse 9 about this mystery, it is the mystery of his will according to his own good pleasure. It is what God chose to do. What God felt in his good pleasure was what should be done. This is the mystery. That, that, that plan that God made in the beginning of time, he didn't consult us. We weren't even born yet. We weren't even created yet. The world wasn't even created yet. He didn't consult us. It was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God was there. And who did God consult? Himself. It was by the good pleasure of his will. Now, that word can be translated just will. This is, what I'm, this is what I'm going to do. I'm God, and I'm decided to do it, and this is what I'm going to do. That's it. I'm God. I do what I want to do. I'm God. That's what I'm doing. It could just mean that, but it doesn't just mean that. That's not the word that Paul chose. And that's why it's been described in English as the good pleasure of his will. It means, the, the, the word means a good will. It means a kindly intention. It means, like it says, the good pleasure of his will. 
It's what one wants to do, but it springs from delight. One commentator illustrated it like this. He said, you may have to have a serious surgery, and you are going to say, okay, I'm going, I'm doing this, I'm going to go get that surgery. Don't want to, but I'm going to because it's what I need to do, so I'm just going to do it. That would be an act of your will, and you're doing that out of the good pleasure of your will in that sense. But he said, but that's not what this word means. This word is more like this. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to plow up this acre of ground right here, and I'm going to plant this garden, and I'm going to put all of these flowers, every flower, and I'm excited, and I'm excited, and I can't wait to get about doing that. That's the good pleasure of his will, and that's the word that's being used here. God, out of the good pleasure of his will, notice the next phrase, which he purposed in himself. Or some of your Bibles say he purposed in him, or some of them even say he purposed in Christ, although Christ doesn't appear, that word doesn't appear in this verse. God purposed this will, whether he purposed it within himself or he purposed it in Christ, which I believe should be the translation. He purposed this will. And now what is it? What is the plan? What is the plan? Verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times... Now, you all know I love the New King James Bible. I think it's very accurate. I love this thing, but I can't stand the fact that they use this word dispensation here because dispensation refer, makes people think of dispensationalism, which is a form of theology which cuts the Bible up into pieces and is pretty much being rejected this day and age, thankfully. That's not what this word, that's, this word shouldn't have been used. Let me explain to you what this word means in Greek. It means the state of being arranged, an arrangement, an order, a plan. Again, one commentator said, God's unique private plan, the plan of salvation. And I know that some of your Bibles do translate it, plan. That in the plan, you could say, in the arrangement of the fullness of the time. What's that? Well, I'll just make that real simple. When all is said and done. When this thing is all played out, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. What in the world does that mean? What in the world does that mean? Well, here once again, we're faced with a, a, a big word that that. A lot of Bibles now will translate this a little bit different to try to, get, try to get the nuance of this word. The Greek word is anakephalio, okay? Sounds big, means nothing to you. Ana is a conjunction, anakephalio. Man, I'm getting, I'm getting it from both sides this time. <laughs> They're our future. I love it, I love it. And they've got lungs. May they use them for God's glory. But I, and I'm going to outshout them, so don't, I'm not worried about that. Anyway, listen, anakephalio. It means ana, which is a preposition, and, and it means up, on as, and above together. But it has the word kephali in the middle of it. And kephali comes from the Greek word kephale, which means head, which means head. And head, of course, can either mean the organic head that, that, that you know, you cut my head off, my body dies. The organic head, which is used of Christ, Ephesians 4. It's huge in Ephesians, by the way. Or head of a corporation, head of a body. Head, 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 head honcho, as it were. The word can use, is used both in Greek, okay? And so what this word can, means 
is something that is summed up or united or gathered together under one, but then it has that word head in there. So how do you translate this? Well, believe it or not, I think one of the best translations has actually been edited out. In the NIV Bible, in the 1984 edition, some of you may have it, this verse, I think, was best captured when it said this, to bring all things together under one head, even Christ. I think that was probably the best translation here. The New King James is wrestling with it here by saying that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, and I think that's true. Listen to how a commentator described it. The entire harmony of the universe, which shall no longer contain alien and discordant elements, but which all parts shall find their center and bond of union in Christ. And I think that's what's being said here. I told you we were going to do some heavy lifting here for a little bit, but hang in there with me. So there's this idea that God's plan all the way in the beginning involved his son, Jesus. And it involved uniting everything together in Christ. Now, that assumes that at some point, the thing was just destroyed and, and alienated and broken. And that's the fall. And that over time in this plan involving the cross, involving salvation, involving the giving of the Holy Spirit, involving regeneration, and involving the second coming of Christ, and involving the, the actual total restoration of all of heaven and all of earth under the headship of Christ, united to Christ. That was the plan. That was the huge master plan. Now, notice how Paul starts working that thing out, even in the book of Ephesians. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come, and put all things under his feet, and notice this, and gave him to be the kephale, the head of all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is starting to help us to understand this mystery. Christ, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, has now been placed as head over everything, everything, all principality, all power, all name, any name that could be named. He has been made head of all of those things for the church. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, because all power and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, has been given to me. This, this uniting everything under Christ then starts in chapter 2 and verse 14. Notice what Paul says. Here he's talking about Jew and Gentile. And he says, for he himself is our peace who made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Here Christ is starting to unite people, starting to unite Jew and Gentile together into one people, one new man. He's uniting all things in Christ Jesus. Look at chapter 4 and verse 13. Through the local church, this is actually referring to the local church, till we all come to the unity of the faith 
and knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect or mature man, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. God has got this people, the church, and he's bringing them united. He's uniting them together in Christ. He's uniting all things together in Christ. He's bringing all things together in Christ, even to the end of time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 24, it says this, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule, all authority, and all power, because they don't need him anymore because we have Christ who's head of all. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Christ is reigning now. All of his enemies are being put under his feet. All things are being brought to unity under him. All of his enemies are de being defeated. And one of those is that last enemy that's going to be defeated is death. Is death. Again, let's go on because there's more of this in Scripture. You're in Ephesians. Look in Philippians, the very next verse. Chap I'm sorry, the very next book. Chapter 2, verse 9. Passage that Dan preached on just last week. Chapter 2 and verse 9. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those of heaven and those of earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All things being brought under the head of one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians. That's Philippians. The next book is Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him, in Christ, all of the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile, reconcile, reestablish a relationship of closeness and friendship, reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And then it gets real practical. Look at verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. You see what Christ is, God is doing? He's reconciling the world to himself through Christ. He's reconciling all heaven and, and, and earth. He's reconciling everything. So go back to our passage again. Philippians chapter 1. And look at what Paul, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1. And look at what Paul is saying. Let's just review it now. Verse 8, which he made to abound or he lavished, and here it's the riches of his grace. He lavished on us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself or in Christ, that in the dispensation, in the arrangement and plan of the fullness of the times when all was said and done, he might gather together in one, under one head, all things in Christ, both things which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. That's God's big plan. Now, let's apply this to ourselves. Remember I said there was, a, there's, Paul's talking about this, this mystery, this plan that God worked out. Nobody knew about it. Nobody knew, but God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then over time, he begins to reveal it. And now he reveals it big time to us, to the church. This big plan. I want you to just grasp and understand the amazing, breathtaking beauty of this plan, okay? The, how absolutely astounding and beautiful this plan actually is. In fact, this plan, this mystery that is, was kept hidden before time began, this plan answers 
most all of the biggest questions of life. Let that sink in for a little bit. This plan answers most of the big, big questions in life. Probably all of them, but let's just put it on pause here because people say, yeah, but what about, you know, mosquitoes? Or, you know, why did God, you know, do this? Let's, but, but the big ones are, are all answered here. What is life all about? That's answered in the big plan. Why are we here? That's answered in the big plan. What is the meaning of life? That's answered in the big plan. How is this all going to end? That's answered in the big plan. In the mystery which has now been revealed. God is glorifying his son and is going to reconcile all things together and bring all of his enemies under his feet. He's going to reconcile everything under the headship of Christ. God said it long ago as he was opening the plan up. Psalm 2 says this. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. This is God the Father speaking about Jesus, his son. And I, declare, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. There's the plan. It's all going to be under Christ. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. What is the big plan? The big plan is that God is going to restore this broken, fallen creation, planet, people. He's going to restore them and reconcile them and bring the whole cosmos to restoration in Christ Jesus. The Bible says the creation itself is groaning for the day when Christ will be revealed and the sons of God will be revealed with him. It's groaning and groaning creation. The Bible says the lion is going to lie down with the lamb. There's no more savagery. There's no more killing. There's no more bloodshed that's going to be given. The child could put his hand in, 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 a, in a snake pit, the Bible says. and He won't have to worry about any kind of harm at all. There's going to be absolute harmony Eden-type harmony, Eden-type health, Eden-type joy, Eden-type pleasure. No death. The final enemy is going to be death. No death. Death will be gone. Death will be forgotten. There will come a time when we'll have our time remembering death. No weeping. No injustice. No crying. No hatred. No hurt. All just a beautiful unity and peace and joy and life. Eternal life. See, dear friends, all religions and all philosophies of life try to make these promises, but they can't deliver. They don't deliver. This was the appeal of Marxism in the, in the early 19, late 1800s and early 1900s. The appeal of Marxism so that an entire nation, Russia, and, now an, and then later an entire nation, China, embraced this idea of Marxism. That Marxism was going to be able to give to the world complete justice. Communism was going to give sharing and harmony and equality and peace and justice. And many people from the West, many intellectuals from the West, many of the intellectual elites bought into this whole thing. 
until Stalin came along and Mao Zedong came along. And this whole promise of Marxism became the most oppressive, violent, death-delivering, awful thing. And see, this is what God does is he takes our fake man-made towers of Babel. He takes those fake man-made philosophies and he lets them run to their very end until we see we should have trusted God. We're not gone with man. That's what's happening in our world today. This is the appeal of Islam, by the way. The appeal of Islam is that Allah is going to bring about a world of, of just peace and a world of happiness and a world of, of, of un, unity and all of the nations and all of the races are going to be brought together under, under Islam. And that's the appeal of Islam today. And yet God is allowing it to show its true colors. And once again, we see the kind of emptiness and we see the kind of hypocrisy and we see the kind of violence. And then think about today, because Western secular progressive philosophy was that through our progressive thinking, we are going to bring about unity and diversity, and we're going to bring about equality, and there's going to be equality for everybody, equality for the sexes, equality for everybody, it's all going to be equality. And what we're finding out is that in order to elevate one, we have to oppress another. And now we have new oppressors and new people who are being oppressed. And in order to bring rights to this one, we have to deny rights to this one. And where, is, where has progressive liberal thinking left people today? Where is the world at today? Is it filled with hope? Is it looking forward to hope? No. No. Most people today are seriously depressed over several matters. Number one. The, what they believe to be the impending ecological disaster. There is an impending ecological disaster and we're going to completely destroy this planet. Or the possibility of impending nuclear exchange. If, if the, 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 the nations that have and those who are developing nuclear weapons, if just one of those thousands of nuclear weapons is used, and that leads to then a scaling of nuclear exchange, the world that we know will cease to exist. No, no, people are worried about oppressors and they're worried about the increasing violence and they're worried about the injustices that they're seeing and they're worrying about selfishness. Sexual liberation was supposed to bring us happiness and what sexual liberation has brought us is, is human trafficking. What sexual liberation has brought us is this pornography that, that is addictive and destroying our young people. What sexual liberation was supposed to bring us is that women now identify themselves by the one thing, the one thing that identifies them as their ability and their right to murder the children in their own womb. That's their identity now. They just want to be like men. What in the world? Where is the freedom? Where is the liberty? Where is the hope? There is no reason to hope. There is no hope. And that's why the message of the gospel is so glorious. Dear friends, don't you see that what Ephesians 9 and 10 is talking about here is the glorious hope for the world. The great glorious hope for the world. Jesus Christ is going to be head of all of the world. And right now he is bringing all of his enemies under his feet. And right now something powerful has been unleashed upon this world. You see this glorious hope of all creation, all of the cosmos, all of the heavens, all of the earth, all of creation, all people brought as it were under the headship of Jesus Christ and living in absolute utter happiness and harmony and goodwill. This is all the 
that people are hoping for is going to actually be played out in this way in the kingdom of God. From every tribe and every race and every color, all of the races harmonizing together. And it's happening even today. It's so amazing to me how universities are working so hard to achieve a man-made imposed diversity and all it's doing is dividing people. And then there's the body of Christ made of Africans. This morning, this morning as the sun rose and went across Asia, Asian people raised their hands and hearts and praised the name of Jesus. And then as that sun went into the Middle East, Middle Eastern people, Christians raised and lifted their heart. And then Europe and Africa, they raised. And now in the United States and South America, we're raising and lifting our hands and love. And all of these people, all they love Christ and they love each other and they've been brought to unity in Christ Jesus. And this thing is going to eventually lead to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and this beautiful new heavens and new earth where heaven and earth become one, a unity between heaven and earth. Read the end of the book of Revelation. Heaven comes down and dwells upon the earth and heaven and earth are the same thing. A new heavens and a new earth and new bodies that are resistant to and, and, and immune to death, immune to disease, no disease, no death, no suffering, complete unity, complete love, perfect love and harmony for one another. All of it is promised in the gospel. All of it is coming. It's real. And it was so real to New Testament Christians that Paul's writing it in verse 9 of the first chapter of this amazing book. This was their hope. And they all believed that there was down payment. There were down payments. We knew this was going to happen because we had down payments. And two of them are very clearly mentioned in the scriptures. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There it is. This man was dead and he defeated death and he's alive and now he's been ascended and he's at the right hand of the throne of the Father and he is king of all kings and lord of all lords and he is good and loving and sacrificial and kind and gracious and full of grace and he dies on behalf of us and he dies taking our sin and he dies full of love for us and he's risen and he's reigning now and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him and now he's sending out his gospel. He's sending out his gospel and then the second down payment, we're going to get to this and in the weeks ahead is the Holy Spirit and the transforming power of God in our own lives. And how many of you have felt the transforming power of God in your life? God's transformed you. God's changed you. You're not perfect, no way. But you sure aren't what you used to be. You're different. The power of God has come. God is at work. God is transforming. God is changing. God is moving and God is working. And you know what, dear Christians? I think we're really blowing it here. I think we're really messing up bad. Here's where I think we Christians are messing up bad in this day and age. This is well beyond two things. Number one, this is well beyond getting some kind of political reform going on in this country. Now, I'm all in favor of political reform. I'm all in favor of you know, being responsible with your vote. I'm all in favor of that. I'm all in favor of values. I'm all in favor of that, but this is well beyond that. This is well beyond. You can pass all the rules you want. You can get all your... We can make King David. We can make the Apostle Paul the next president of the United States. It's not going to change people's hearts. Second is this. This is actually even well beyond dying and going to heaven. Now, I certainly believe in dying and going to heaven. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to dying and going to heaven. Death is gain in that sense. And I'm really looking forward to heaven. And I can't wait to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord in one sense. I really want to see him face to face. I don't want to worship with y'all anymore. I want to worship up there. 
So when I sing, I see him. And I, and I, and I look him in the eye and I sing to him. I, I want all that. Going to heaven is great. But dear friends, the Christian gospel is way bigger than that. It's a new heaven and new earth and justice and, and no more sin and no more brokenness and no more divorce and no more death and no more murder and no more rape and no more sex trafficking and no more injustice and no more oppression. It's unity and happiness and joy. No more tornadoes, no more earthquakes, no more tsunamis. It's a new heavens and a new earth where peace and justice and joy exist. That's the vision of Christianity. It's a new world coming and it's coming and we're going to be a part of that and he is coming and I think this should begin to be in a greater greater measure a bigger bigger part of our witness to other people we should be people of hope and where does this begin this begins with us believing that these things are true and believing that this great plan is being worked out and believing how glorious this plan is see what Paul is doing here Paul is saying this. Look at verse 6. He's saying to the praise of the glory of his grace. Look at verse 7. He's poured out upon us the riches of his grace. Look at what God has done for us. He's purposed all of these things. You know what is a big part of the big plan? God's over here in the big plan. And besides saying, I'm going to restore everything under the Lord Jesus Christ and bring back heaven on earth and dwell with them big part of this plan was I'm going to show them my grace it's all going to be a grace I'm going to favor them when they don't deserve favor I'm going to love them when they don't deserve love I'm going to forgive them when they don't deserve forgiveness I'm going to be there for them I'm going to be their God even though they don't even want me to be their God I'm going to send the Holy Spirit I'm going to change their heart I'm going to bring these rebels in I'm going to sacrifice my son on their behalf I'm going to love them I'm going to adopt them as my children I'm going to do good to them I'm going to give them my Holy Spirit I'm going to guard them to the end I'm going to keep them and hold them I'm going to see them through trial they're going to die in my arms. I'm going to bring them to heaven. I'm going to prepare a place for them. Then I'm going to bring a new heavens and new earth and they're going to dwell there in new bodies and they're going to be my people and it's all of grace, all of grace, all of grace, all of grace. And dear ones, it has been revealed to us. Look at verse 9. Having been known to us, God has revealed this plan to us. And not only that, it is being revealed in us. We're in the plan. We are the plan. God's going to show forth the glory of his grace and his love in us. In us. Look at verse 22. He put all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and gave him to be head, Jesus, head over all things, to the church, for the church, on behalf of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This whole purpose was, I'm going to shower and lavish and pour my grace out upon them forever and ever and ever and ever to show forth my grace. Look at chapter 3 and verse 10. To the intent that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, archangels, angels, armies and legions of heaven, archdemons, 
arch demons and the demons and the legions of hell. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. Look at my plan. Look at my grace. Look at the glory of my son. Look at these people that I've saved. These people that I've saved by grace. My church. My church. This is what I have done. These will be the heirs of the world. These will be the inheritors of the world. These will be the ones that I have saved. Dear friends, he's lavished his grace upon us. You've been chosen. You've been adopted. That's how Paul begins this. Christ's blood was shed for you. He said for you, your sins are forgiven. You and, and the Lord, and this is my favorite one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is going to be the head of all of this, the source of all of this, the purpose and glory of all of this, the king of all of this, the summation of all of creation, that Lord Jesus Christ, get ready for it, that Lord Jesus Christ and us are united, are united, we are one, he is the head, we are the body, he is the vine, we are the branches, he is the groom, we are the bride, we are one, we will inherit it all in him, we will reign in him, we will never be apart from him who is the highest and most glorious, oh dear ones, we are so we are so blessed. And I believe that if just the smallest fraction of that would exude through our expression, the smallest expression of that grace would come out of our mouths and out of our hearts and love for our unbelieving loved ones and friends and, and out of our mouths. You see, don't get, don't get sidetracked in fighting people over politics. Don't get sidetracked in, in thinking, well, this is just about me and me getting to have it. Let them see the big picture. Let them understand that this is a new heaven, a new earth is coming. This world is going to be beautiful again. This world is going to be just. Justice is coming. Just diversity is coming. It's all coming in Christ. Joy is coming. And it will last forever. And I'm going to be there. Are you going to be there? It's coming. It's coming. Are you in? Are you going to be there? Or are you so willfully defined against God that you would ruin the whole thing? And so God is going to say to you, you're not coming in. You're going to hell. You say, oh, that's mean. God's sending people to hell. God's not going to send you to hell. You're going to send you to hell. Because you're going to say, I don't want this. I don't want Christianity. I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want this stuff. I like this world. I like what's going on. Well, you come here tonight and you listen about the whore of Babylon and you can go to bed with her and you find out what that's going to be like. You will die and perish with her. I want this world. I want this. I like this fallen world. Then you're going to get what you want. You're going to be banished with this world. And you're going to go to hell. And there is a hell. Jesus, we don't like to talk about it. We, the only thing we can do is make fun of it at the Grammys. But there is a hell. And people go there. And they go there forever. I was talking to the coroner yesterday in Mercer County. He said, last year I was involved in 1,400 cases of death. And my heart just went, oh, Lord, how many of those people went to hell? Oh, Lord, give us grace. 
Oh, Lord, let us be the people that we want to be, that we are called to be. You know what God should see in us? Not some kind of political slogan, not some kind of con conservative family values, although I believe in all of them. Joy. Boldness, anticipation, because everything in him is true. It's true, gloriously true. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we bow our heads before you, and we just say to you, thank you so much. Thank you for including us in your plan. Thank you that before this world was ever even formed, before you made one atom, one star, one galaxy, this earth, a human race, thank you that in your grace you loved us and you made us part of your plan. Thank you for that special day when you called us out of darkness and we became Christians. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. Thank you for opening our eyes and showing us Jesus. Thank you for forgiving us of all of our sins. Thank you for adopting us into your family. Thank you that you're preparing a place for us and thank you that a new heavens and a new earth is ours. We will inherit it. Oh, Father, thank you for by your grace including us in this. Father, help us to walk each day as citizens of this new heavens and new earth as representatives of its joy, representatives of its hope, representatives of its love, representatives of grace, help us to be people who just pour out grace on everybody around us because we have been so filled with grace. Give us grace. And Father, for any who are here today who are outside of this hope, who have no hope, who have come here perhaps even in rebellion too, perhaps even were dragged here, didn't even want to be here, Oh, Father, thank you that you brought them here anyway and that you spoke into their lives and that you have invited them to come, come, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, that they might be saved today, that they might trust in you today. We praise you and worship you in your precious name. Amen.